Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to pick it up where we left it off uh, with Natasha Rodney Kale, who works with the Drug Evaluation Unit at Nova Scotia Health. So Natasha, let's dig into this next case. One study, I mean, you made me think about a study that came out of the eMERGE looking at what was the average number of pills that patients, when they discharged from the emergency department, how many, especially these, these would be primarily injuries that were not musculoskeletal, they were more fractured related. So, uh, and on average, patients used maybe nine of the tablets, so nine, 10 of the tablets, mm-hmm. uh, and everything else was left behind. They stopped using after that amount. So it yeah. was kind of, and I thought, well, that makes a little bit of sense. And uh, and, you know, I understand where, you know, people where we all have been coming from, we don't want to send people out and be inadequately treated with pain. But we've probably been a little more, you know, providing more than than really we, we they, you know, most people need. And at least these sort of thresholds and guides are, are starting to become available to at least inform those decisions. Yeah. And I think I think you bring up a really important point, too. So. Generally, for 95% of the population that we treat, it goes, it, you know, the pain system responds the way it should. The patient's body protects it. It tells us when then, then things heal and then everything settles down. A small percentage of patients who are hardwired a little bit differently. And these patients, because we don't know, one of the questions I asked Jason Bussey, I don't know if you were online when we were talking about some of the work they were doing on acute pain and the pharmacotherapy was... Um, did they exclude patients who had a pre-existing condition of chronic pain and how those patients uh, would respond, you know, to uh, an acute pain situation in terms of their use of the pharmacotherapy? And I think sometimes it depends on uh, what they were using previous, but I think there's some complexity there that we have to appreciate even if there is no progression or anything bad happening, but we need to be able to have that conversation with the patient that what's probably happening here is that their tissue is healing, but it's their chronic pain flare-ups that are actually contributing. And Mm -hmm. where that becomes a little bit clearer is when you hit that four-week mark. And we know that the, uh, this is often where the orthopedic surgeon says, look, everything looks great. You don't, you know, go back to see your family doc. They can follow you up. And then the family physician is saying, well, what the heck do I do with this? Because the patient's telling me that their pain is 12 on 10. And, the orthopedic surgeon's telling me that there is nothing there that's contributing. It doesn't mean that that patient is not experiencing real pain. It just means we have to shift where the focus is and look more at that focus of chronic pain and help the patient manage those Mm flare-ups. And nine times out of 10 in my experience, what's driving the pain at that stage is often the pain protective behaviors that we're not having the conversations with patients around. And that would be sort of those pain tucks that they get into, the fear of moving the extremity. So those are things that need to be addressed. And um, we need to recognize that it's not just uh, the actual tissue piece that's important. It's Mm -hmm. really how that pain system is responding as well. Mm -hmm. Question for you. Would you say that in most those patients that are just not responding in terms of healing the way we and pain responses sort of we to be expected that a lot of the times they do have that underlying chronic pain piece? Yeah. Or the other piece we could look at, because if you if you look at the mechanism of chronic pain in particular, obviously, so chronic pain, as you know, has just been recognized by the World Health Organization as a very distinct pathophysiology, right? It's a very distinct illness. 
So when you look at pain amplification, so I think about patients who are waiting for surgeries for these very osteoarthritic joints um, and just living every day with significant pain, probably being managed with opiate analgesics, which long-term we know can contribute to pain sensitization. So by the time they have their surgery, they, they have a pain system that's incredibly amplified depending on how they've been managing And so trying to get that pain system to wind back down again can be very challenging for some patients. It is very possible because it's about neuroplasticity, right? So just like it can wind up in one uh, way, it can actually wind down in another way. But I think it's I think the mistake that we can make as healthcare providers is we often, you know, be are very critical of patients that and just tell them to suck it up, right? So mm. look, it's better. Yes, we've made your knee. Look at your knee can move so much better. You know, I didn't promise you I was going to take away your pain. And and so that to me is really unfortunate because it really delegitimizes that what that patient is experiencing, uh, like that somehow they should feel responsible for their ongoing suffering, when in fact it's the pain system that's contributing and how that ongoing shame and stigma can actually drive it. So I think it's how we address the amplification piece mm-hmm. and help patients understand that sometimes these, because it's just the flexibility that we have in that nervous system, that the, and so once that, once that amplification happens, Often what's tied in there, because these patients are never at zero, are these intense flare-ups that can come out of nowhere, right? (laughs) That are not related to their surgery, not related to infection, not related. So it's just, it's understanding that pathophysiology piece in the context of these very complex patients and how we help them manage that. And generally, it's not a pill. It's really our ability to sit and listen and lean in. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where I think sometimes... We just need to be able to, uh, and that that's that requires a lot of work. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit, but it, it does require a lot more work. But I think what patients want us to hear is that we're listening and that we're acknowledging and that we're actually examining them to make sure that there's nothing new. They need a lot of reassurance, but they also need, they need new habits and behaviors to manage those intense flare-ups and how they get moving and how they get back to life. So that's my little rant on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's really interesting to me, though, because like I said, you know, a lot of what we've looked at from an evidence perspective, you know, it, it bears out that a majority of patients do well with less than we have historically prescribed. But there are and it does seem to sit around that five to 10 percent group that just still don't get adequate pain um, control with with um with what we are doing and and so it could be that piece and, and that's sort of a, a flag to to physicians and prescribers is that if a patient isn't and the, and the pain isn't improving the way we would expect it to correlate with tissue healing and i think that's a really important piece that patients are also really well informed that especially with post-surgical pain that it will improve day by day so what you used yes needed yesterday may even improve tomorrow. Um, And even in those more major surgeries, you know, tapering of the opioid off over the first week to 10 days is just not expected to really be practical. But then once that healing continues, it can, the, the, the needs go down quite rapidly, but it goes along with that healing piece. So if it's not correlating with healing or expected healing, um, you know, is it uh, is it something sort of pathological that's going on or is there just that pain response that's different for, for yeah. those patients? And, and this is where we need to shift our focus too from, because uh, sometimes uh, healthcare providers will keep patients more pain focused by, by using things like pain scales, mm-hmm. right? Pain scales 
don't work well for patients with persistent pain, right? Because the patient's zero is never zero. It's always elevated. And so that's why they often can go off the scale with these pain flare-ups. So looking at functional scale, so looking at uh, how they've improved in sort of their mobility may be mm-hmm. another way to look at it. But also the other thing that I think is so, so important, if a decision is made in consultation with the patient and the prescriber to leave the patient on the pharmacotherapy, then I, I, I would put a caution out there around the, the use of short-acting opioids. Um, and I often will see this in the chronic pain population Um, which has always amazed me, and I'd love to be able to dig into the literature around this. So working with a palliative care population, when I'm trying to manage pain, you know, I wouldn't just leave the patient on uh, short acting, obviously, because of the nature of the medication, right? The patient's going to experience tolerance. They're going to experience withdrawal. They're not going to think withdrawal. What they're going to feel is, I have more pain. I have more anxiety. I can't sleep at night. But in the chronic pain population, so we switch them to long acting, and then they get better pain control. But in the chronic pain population, often they get left on short acting, notoriously more so than than long acting. Uh, and, and often when you're trying to switch them to long acting, they hate it. And I think part of it, I've had some conversations with patients just trying to understand this, you know, just getting curious and trying to understand this, is that when you have severe pain that's always sitting there and you found a tool that at some level is helping even though in the end it's probably contributing um, and, and you you need to feel that tool working. So that short acting piece is I think what happens is the brain links onto is they can feel it working so they know they're going to get relief and they probably get relief even before it actually hits its peak, just like sometimes when we're using cigarettes, right? Not to say that I'm looking at addiction there. Obviously, it's probably not a great comparison, but people that have habits around say using cigarettes um, often will get relief of their anxiety even before they actually start to 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 use the cigarette right so there's different layers of of how we get you know these habits that we get into that sometimes will help but in the end can harm so it can it's it's always a concern to me when i see this very large short acting pill burden that may be contributing actually to the patient's pain and may be driving a lot of those other uh, other concerns or all these challenging symptoms that we often see like poor sleep or feeling more anxious and you know just yeah so so i think i just wanted to add that little piece as well yeah and uh, it becomes really very challenging because when you're looking at um utilizing opioids for acute pain the long actings are, are are not recommended currently because of um, there's you know again back going back to observational evidence, but it suggests that there's actually greater um, adverse effects and harms with mm. chronic opioid or long acting opioids because um, patients might not get that a sort of immediate relief if, if we're promoting it for on an as needed basis only if you're not able to sort of you're you're not getting adequate pain control or you're not able to sort of complete your activities of daily living Mm -hmm. um it doesn't fit and there's actually also evidence to say that patients that are prescribed um, long acting for acute pain have a greater chance of being on therapy longer term over a year out um, so from an acute pain perspective that's where those sort of short actings do seem to play a role but where that transition comes in, um, mm. because like you said, then they're kept on potentially um, patients when they, if they either have the chronic pain underlying or do go on to develop chronic pain um, and being continuing to being prescribed, those short acting can be problematic. And, 
thank you for pointing that out, Natasha, because obviously I'm not promoting the use of long acting for acute mm-hmm. pain. It mm-hmm. is that population that have been left on these short acting. So I'll see them probably a year, two years out in the pain clinic, right? Mm-hmm. So the reality is, though, is in my experience, it is almost impossible to taper someone off an opioid, which may be, in and in, in most times it's actually very appropriate to taper the patient off the opioid, um, to taper them with short-acting opioids. <laughs> so, oh. so, you know, typically I will rotate them to a long-acting for taper, mm-hmm. um, but I, it's almost impossible because of the nature of the opioid, not the patient, it's the nature of the opioid. These patients who are experiencing pain as well as who have an opioid analgesic short acting they've been on for a while have lost the effectiveness of that opioid so they're mm-hmm. doubling up they're running out early they're using time like it just it's a it's a nightmare sometimes mm-hmm. but totally i agree because the conversation is around the acute pain is that i would not use long acting for acute pain but this 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 gray zone that often patients get into, and I, I would I would argue is probably what we're all talking about in terms of the challenges that we see in clinical practice. Mm-hmm. These patients that have been left on these opioid analgesics too long, mm-hmm. and nobody wants to stop them. It started from a specialist, and patient will come. Well, the specialist recommended it. You need to continue it as a primary care practitioner, and uh, so this is where you can kind of get into those challenges sometimes. Yeah. And, and from that acute pain lens, and, you know, and it certainly does happen, those patients that, you know, like you said, at four weeks, the pain is still not really improving, or certainly for the four to six week mark, that's sort of the, thresh, the threshold. So I say this person might be developing or, like you said, transitioning into more of a chronic pain situation. And definitely by that three month mark, they're, you know, they would be sort of past that acute pain what we typically consider that acute pain period. So right. um, it doesn't take long to be, you know, to be turned into, you know, yeah. when you're really dealing, addressing it from a chronic pain issue. Yeah, I, th- I think personally that, um, um, and I, I, know, I know we don't have a lot of evidence, but I really think that if we're looking, I, I personally would not keep a patient on an opioid longer than two weeks. And that, and the reason, so what I would be doing though, is that you would, how you prevent that from happening is that you'd not see the opioid as the primary therapy for the patient. And in fact, pharmacotherapy is not being the primary therapy for that patient. It's all the other things that we have to bring in there, you know, um, in terms of, you know, getting them back to life, getting them, you know, developing a, uh, a structure and routine that feels safe around movement, around interacting, all these kinds of things that we need to bring in it. So the f- non-pharmacotherapy therapies can be so important, um, as well as the pharmacotherapy, th- looking at them realistically, right? So <laughs> anyway, but uh, no, it's a great discussion. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know if there was anything else that you wanted to add. It's uh it was a great discussion. Yeah, no, that was great. I, I think we kind of touched on pretty much all the all the high points for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know unless you were thinking of anything, Maureen, that you'd like. No, to- I just was looking at the slide on the consensus statement, and uh, so I didn't know if you wanted to read out those four points because I think those are really important. Okay, so the uh, consensus statement. The, we'll focus on the Canadian ones. I have to admit. Um, it is just that it is a consensus statement um, because, like I say, we're dealing with with fairly low quality data to inform our um, to inform these these statements. Um, the there are, like I said, there was also the Washington state ones. Those are more of a global perspective of, of acute pain prescribing in opioids, whereas the Canadian consensus statement is specific to to post surgery. Um, but they actually 
correlate very well with each other. So I will uh, kind of read it with the Canadian statement, this consensus statement is, it goes back to the speed of recovery. So patients with an expected rapid recovery, um, which would be an example would be to resume regular activities within two weeks from discharge, um, should be prescribed enough opioid for zero to three days following discharge and a maximum of 12 tablets. Patients with an expected moderate recovery, so that would be four weeks of uh, resuming regular activity, should be uh, opioids for a maximum of seven days. We already talked that as an example, but a maximum of 30 tablets. So it goes back that it's not going to be maximum doses or maximum pills right up to that seven-day mark. Um, See, what I wish they would have done there is would have said in um, partial fills. And I, you know what they do, I might oh, okay. not be captured in this table, but um, so, and then the seven days, sort of, sort of that longer term recovery, they say maximum of 14 days um, discharge, um, following discharge um, with the maximum of 60 tablets, but they do promote that anybody, yeah. uh, a part filler or second prescription should be given to patients with any, um, moderate or long-term recovery to reduce the number of opioid containing tablets um, at any one time. So certainly that seven days is a threshold. Um, it could even be less though, especially in that sort of um, more rapid recovery um, or even moderate recovery where, you know, it certainly could be, you know, uh, even three days, because sometimes three days is adequate for a lot of patients. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. So three days with a, with a part fill. Um, the only piece to keep in mind is, is it's a challenge somewhat is part fills. Patients do have to pay a second full dispensing fee from the pharmacy. Right. Um, so yeah. just to be aware of that, it's it's good practice and, and, and good to be encouraged because these patients may not need that additional an additional fill. Um, but a, a point that has to be, you know, taken into, into consideration. But certainly starting out not knowing who, you know, if a patient isn't requiring anything to um, to seven days as an absolute max is, is a, is a reason, more than reasonable threshold to work with. The other thing you brought up, Maureen, is the guidelines clearly promote or the consensus statement clearly promote do not prescribe ahead of time. Only write the triplicate at the point or duplicate now, I guess. Um, at the point of discharge, and if a patient hasn't required opioid therapy, if they were admitted for their particular um, procedure, and they haven't required opioid therapy in the 24 hours prior to discharge, that would be a flag that that person probably won't likely won't need anything and not to prescribe it in those patients. And we, and we all know stories of patients that were given a prescription, came home with a prescription. Uh, one, one of my colleagues was telling me uh, about uh, one of her kids who actually had a, kept getting a dislocated shoulder, had a procedure done and went home with a script of 60 tablets of Percocet. Mm-hmm. And when she saw that, I mean, she 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 was shocked because all he's been you all he was using was Advil. So I think it's just being aware. And this is this is the other piece I think is so important. What we don't do that we do all the time with anti-clotting drugs, and we need to get into the habit is we need to do the risk stratification, mm-hmm. right? So when we're prescribing, so if you have a patient who's high risk, patients had a pre-existing opiate use disorder, uh, somebody who um, has other types of substance use disorder, um, patients who have a very uh, um, you know chaotic kind of home life. If you've got a child, you know you're going to help plan with that patient. You're not you know around the safety. And making a choice that's going to make them feel comfortable. One of the most important conversations I have with patients, or and even with surgeons when they reach out, is that one of our patients that we're following in the opiate agonist therapy clinic who needs to go through surgery is how can we help manage their pain post-operatively? Mm-hmm. And for most patients who've lived with an opiate addiction, the last thing they want is a relapse. 
-hmm. So we shouldn't be afraid to have those conversations. Um, and so this is really around the risk stratification, just like if I'm prescribing warfarin to someone who drinks 12 beer a day um, and is known to be falling, that patient's probably going to die of the therapy, right? So mm -hmm. so I, I, I don't think we think about the risk stratification. Uh, we just have this blanket sort of prescribing kind of uh, pattern that is often not, it not only is pain specific, uh, the prescribing should be very specific and based on safety and risk stratification, in my view. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Because as I said, every, what I've presented is, is very much generalizations and, and, and it is meant to be just a, a starting point for making decisions. Um, yeah. I just think it's so exciting that we're actually having these conversations now because I, I, I personally felt silenced um, when we started seeing patients' lives just go down the tank. Um, but I also feel very blessed that... I, I'm not afraid to use opiates at all. And I wish mm -hmm. physicians wouldn't be afraid or prescribers wouldn't be afraid. I, I do feel like the pendulum has gone the other way. But if we're managing that risk appropriately with that patient, having the conversation, I think personally, it's so much easier now to prevent the most life-threatening complication, which is an opiate use disorder. There's, there's, We can have these conversations now with patients um, if we're using these medications. And uh, so, so, I, I think prevention is is so important, but we shouldn't be afraid to use them. The risk of opiate addiction in the acute pain population is is actually very low. It's the length of time. So addiction needs time in that mm -hmm. vulnerable brain. But we know that there's lots of anecdotal stories of patients who had sprained ankles who went on an opioid and developed addiction from that. So I think it's it's sort of how we balance the risk with that patient in front of us. Listen, I've eaten up enough of your time, okay. Natasha, but thank Sounds you so much. Good. And hopefully I'll get you to come back uh, because <laughs> no, I this think... This has been wonderful. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's great having just a conversation and looking at the practical pieces. Okay. So you have a great, great day. Thanks. Thanks, Maureen. You too. <laughs> All right. Talk All to right. you later. Have bye -bye. a good one. Bye. Bye, bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.